The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. Let's talk for a few minutes about invitations. You know, somebody asks you to go to a ball game, co-workers ask you to go out after work. Uh, maybe you might even get asked out by that special someone on a date. It's an invitation. Invitations can be really flattering if you think about it. Someone was thinking specifically about you and wanted you to be with them on a very specific occasion. That's pretty awesome. Now, there's a lot of invitations that you might receive throughout the year. and Some of those invitations are gladly received. It's something that you're excited about. You like the event. You like the focus. It works great on your calendar. You like the people that actually invited you to go and do these specific things. And it's exciting. And in that moment, you almost cannot say yes fast enough. Uh, you probably need to. If you say yes too fast, you look needy. No bueno. Okay, so there's also those other invitations that come that are grudgingly received. You don't care about the event. You don't like the cause, might not even care too much for the people. Besides, you have a date with Netflix tonight. Seven more episodes and you're caught right up for the season. So you begin to reason in your mind, do I have to go? And, and you start to think through, like run down a pro and con list. Is it right? Should I do this? Uh, and about that time, you're like, do I have a fever? I, I might have a fever. I feel a little hot. No, I'm just irritated. You're like, all right, I can't use fever. And then you go to your calendar, like, is there anything remotely close on my calendar that I could look at to get me out of this? Like, sometimes an invitation is not as well-received as what others are. You just don't really want to go. Invitations can be received or they can be rejected. And a lot of the deciding factor comes back to the appeal of what's being offered. In our section that we're in this morning, Jesus is extending an amazing invitation to people. And it's an invitation that actually comes back to the word thirst. Are you thirsty? And he's not talking about a physical thirst. He's talking about a soul thirst. He's asking whether or not you have this insatiable craving, this internal longing maybe for something that is real or something that is whole or something that is fulfilling. Are you tired of chasing after things that just don't simply satisfy? Are you tired of pursuing experiences and ideologies and personal ambitions that will tell you satisfaction is waiting on the other side? only to get to the other side and find out you have more craving and more desire than you had when you began? Are you tired of getting to the next milestone in your life? And the first thought being, is that it? It's got to be more than that. Are you tired of chasing after maybe morality or religion only to run after them for months or years on end to find that you're more weary on the other side than what you were when you began. Is there this internal thirst? To that specific crowd, Jesus offers to quench the thirst that nothing else can quench. Now, for somebody who's been thirsty for a long time, you'd probably be skeptical of that. How, how does he know what I need? How can he do something that others cannot? 
How can a person who lived 2,000 years ago have any real bearing and impact on my life today? This is 2019, and, and this is an old book. How does that apply to where I am today? Here's what I can tell you for sure based on this old book. What Jesus offers is found nowhere else. You will not find it in religion. You will not find it in morality. You will not find it in experience. You will not find it in accomplishment. You will not find it in self. It is only found in Jesus. When a person accepts the invitation that Jesus offers, he does not promise to make every problem of yours go away. He promises to give you what you need the most. And what we need the most leads to fulfillment and a life of flourishing. He promises to bring hope. He promises to bring meaning. He promises to give life and to give it abundantly. But listen, this is so important. Listen, here it is. Here it is. It is a limited time offer. None of us know if you will ever hear the same invitation again. None of us know when that last breath will be drawn. None of us know when it might be the last time that invitation comes to you. So here's what you find in Scripture. When this offer is being made, there is a warning. If you hear His voice, do not delay. Do not postpone. Do not put it off. The next 25 minutes, I believe, could be the most important 25 minutes of a lot of people's lives. I'm going to do my best over the next 25 minutes to share the story surrounding this invitation by Christ, to share the invitation itself, and then I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the invitation that Jesus has given. There's a lot to cover here. I'm glad that you're with us this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, over to the book of John, chapter number 7, or you can follow on the screen behind me. John chapter 7, verses 31 through 39. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, an urgent invitation. An urgent invitation. While you're finding your place in the text, let me say that different people have different felt needs. For one person, they might have an, a, a felt need, like what I need the most in my life right now is wholeness because they feel broken. Another person might say what I need the most right now is wellness because I feel like I'm in pain. Another person might say I need meaning because I'm just searching for meaning. There's different people who would say, man, I need a savior because my life is wrecked and messed up with a bunch of sin. Whatever that might be, sometimes we'll find ourselves pigeonholing the gospel message to say, the gospel is for you if you're broken. Okay, but that same person might say, but I don't feel broken. In fact, I feel pretty good. My life is great. Got a great job, great spouse, great kids, great house, money in the bank. I don't feel broken at all. There is a wonderful way when you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus begins to address different felt needs. And here, he's addressing those who thirst. He's basically saying, is there something inside of you, this internal craving that all of your accomplishment, all of your pursuits, all of your religion, all of your experience has not been able to quench that thirst. And you're thirsty and you're searching and you just don't know what it is. It's to that crowd that this invitation comes. So it's going to be a good time. Let's read it in the text. Verse 31 and following. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? 
The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks to teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would take the same exact words that have been written on these pages for a couple thousand years. And God, would you use them to become so personal to the people in this room right now. God, block out every distraction so that we can focus entirely on what this message has to say to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. When we left off in our story this last week, the people who lived in Jerusalem were trying to seize Jesus based on verse number 30. They were upset by his remarks, remarks that they considered to be condescending, remarks that they even considered to be blasphemous. It was a group of people who prided themselves in their knowledge of God. And Jesus comes and says, you don't actually know him. But in verse 29, he says, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. That was too much for this group to take. They tried to grab him, but they couldn't seize him because his hour had not yet come. Now, while that group was upset with Jesus because of what he said, there was another group that was present that was believing in Jesus because of what he did. In fact, they were so taken back by his miracles, taken back by his signs, that this second group began to believe in him. And it is that word believe, that many believed, that takes this somewhat mundane moment and it brings it to a showdown between Jesus and the religious elite. It's in this moment that he extends this incredibly urgent invitation. And he gives this invitation. The invitation is for those who are thirsty to believe. For those who are thirsty to believe. And he will tell us why it's urgent. And then he also gives us a beautiful picture of what happens when we believe. So let's go through the text. Why is it urgent to believe in him? First truth I want you to see. God's window of invitation will not always be open. God's window of invitation will not always be open. I want you to see it in the text itself. Remember in verse number 30, there's a group trying to seize him because of what he said. Now in verse number 31, there's another group who is believing in him because of what he did. And a major part of what he did that captured their attention is the signs and the wonders that came with his ministry. This is a Jewish audience. They would have recognized that the Jewish Messiah was to come with many miracles based on Old Testament prophecies. So for this particular crowd, when they saw the signs and wonders that he was doing, and they're listening to his teachings, 
And they're thinking, is this possibly the Christ? The moment his signs, miracles, and Christ began to come together, the religious crowd got extremely nervous. Now, the reason for that is because the leaders already considered him to be a threat. They were trying to kill him based on verse number 1, and they didn't even want people talking about him based on verses 12 and 13. When this crowd began talking about him, and specifically talking about him in the terms of Messiah, the terms of Christ, they said, enough is enough. Look at what happened in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now, there was a grassroots movement trying to seize him in verse 30. This is an official movement trying to seize him in verse number 32. The officers that are sent would be the temple police. This was a group that came out of the Levites. Their primary responsibility was for keeping order within the temple. And this group is now sent to seize Jesus. Now, here's a wonderful thing. Everybody look this way. Here's a wonderful thing. You can tell the personality of the writer. In this category, it's John. John is the writer here. You can tell his personality and you can tell his writing style sometimes based on what he doesn't do. When it says that he was the temple police were sent to seize him, it doesn't tell us anything about him when they arrived. Instead, he's telling the story. He's letting suspense begin to build. Instead, it drops us off in the room with Jesus as he is still sharing and as he gives us amazing invitation. It's actually not until verse number 45 that you find out anything about what happened when the temple police showed up. And the, what you find out is when they went back to the Pharisees and the chief priests, they said, where is he? And they said, no one's ever taught like that man. They were so mesmerized. Get this, the official temple police were so mesmerized by what he said when they stepped into the temple that they didn't do their job. They go back to those who sent them empty-handed, and they're like, where is he? Like, you have never heard somebody teach like that guy. I just love the way the Bible comes together. So Jesus now knows that there is this official arrest warrant that is out for him. And as he knows this, he now begins to speak specifically about his imminent departure. Look in verses 33 and 34. For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Now, there are multiple parts of this message that are coming out here. That is, in this reply, Jesus is indicating that the religious leaders would one day seize him, but today was not that day. There's going to be a time they'll take him, but that's not what's happening here. He also tells them that he is going to be leaving, and he's referring to his soon-to-come future resurrection and future ascension. But after that, they would never touch him again. Listen to this. This is so beautiful. After his death, only loving hands touched him, and only loving eyes ever saw him again. From this point to the cross is six months away. And he introduces it with this phrase, 
a little while longer. Just a a little bit. Another word there is a short time. It's only six months. His death on the cross was imminent. It's six months away. But rather than it being the end of his life, it is simply the return to the glory that he once shared with the Father. Chapter 17, verse 5. Here's what he's saying to this group. To those who reject his invitation, there's a limited amount of time before they will die in their sins. Chapter 8, verse 21. There is urgency in his words. In this moment, you can see there's three types of people responding. And that is, there are some who rejected him. Verse number 30. Some believed in him. Verse number 31. And some tried to silence him, verses 1 and 13. Different people respond in different ways. But the issue is, how are you going to respond to the invitation that's been extended? Because it is a limited time offer. That brings us into our next point. Pride in unbelief blind us from the truth. What gets in the way of people responding to this invitation? Pride in unbelief will blind us from the truth. If you ask the question of anybody out there, what is hindering you from responding to the gospel message of Jesus Christ? They might go through and say, it's this reason, here's an excuse, this is what happened in my life, this is what's been going on, I don't believe, I don't see, I don't, whatever it might be. You boil it down, here's what I guarantee you'll find on the other side. Pride in unbelief. Pride says, I don't need any help. I can do it myself. Give me enough time, I'll get it right. I'll figure it out. I'll satisfy my own thirst. I will make my own way. That's the voice of pride. Unbelief says, I don't trust God to meet my need. I don't believe that Jesus knows what I need. I don't believe that his life and his death and his resurrection has any bearing on my life and my fulfillment in my future. That is the voice of pride in unbelief. I want you to see it in the text. Instead of this crowd heeding the warning of Jesus, this unbelieving, prideful group begins to ridicule Jesus. They say in verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? You see the pride, the arrogance there? It goes on to say, He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks, is he? Here's what they're saying. The thought of any possible Jewish Messiah walking out of Jerusalem and going to the Greeks, the heathen, the Gentiles, seemed preposterous. For for them, the the idea that, that this This self-proclaimed Messiah would do anything like that. It didn't fit their mindset. It didn't fit what they believed. It didn't fit their understanding of who Messiah would be. There was like, there's there's no way. You can sense the pride. You can sense the unbelief. Now, notice the way Jesus switches gears. Instead of focusing on his origin, where he's from, as it did in verses 27 through 29, he's now focused on his departure, where he's going verses 33 and 34. And he defines the timeline with the word little. I'm with you a little while longer. But this group missed the points. 
they are focused on location. Where's he trying to go that we can't find him? Instead of focusing on what he's saying, there's just a little time. His emphasis is more on the time. As Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Paul told the Corinthians, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews pleaded with his readers, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In a similar way, Jesus is warning his opponents, there's only a little bit of time. Don't turn away this invitation. There's just a little bit of time. But they refused. Instead of honestly listening to the claims of Christ, they relied on what they knew up until this point. They relied on their own knowledge, their own understanding, their own belief. Their own prejudice and superficial examination of the facts led them to ridicule and led them to reject. This is not in your notes, but it might be important. You can apply it in so many areas of life. Here's just a statement I wrote in mine. It's easier to label people and libel people than listen to people. It's far easier to just not listen and think in your mind, I don't have to listen because of what I know. I don't have to listen because of who I think they are. What you'll find, and this is just human tendency, what you will find is that necessity is what opens our ears to the message of the gospel. Those people who might not be open now, let sickness hit your family that you cannot solve. Let death enter your family that you cannot take the pain away. Let job loss go on for six months, nine months, a year. Let the internal demons of sin, those things that have grabbed you for a long time, when those things begin to wreck the relationships and wreck the opportunities and you can't feel free of them, let the necessity of the problem enter in and all of a sudden people are open and they're willing to listen to the message of Christ. What I want to encourage you today is don't let that be your story. Don't let it be that necessity drives you to listen. Instead, take the time now and listen. Let let his voice come through. That is, will you listen to the offer that he is making for your life today? Please don't let pride and unbelief get in the way of a message that will change your life and change your future and lead you onto a life that is abundant with him. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us know that we're even going to make it to the parking lot. Somebody might say, Paul, listen, you're just trying to scare us. No, listen, it's the brevity of time. Just this last week, I'm talking to a member of our staff, one of our pastors, and this last week, two people in their life, young people, stepped out into eternity this last week. Two and, and that's, that's the thing. There's, there's those moments when we say, oh, I've heard, I'll wait, I've got more living to do. No, you don't know that you've got more living to do. You don't know that today is not the day you will step out into eternity. Don't let unbelief and pride. 
be something to keep you away from the gospel message. Where the person says, Paul, I'm willing to listen. What's he offering? Here's the last piece. I want you to see it. Here's what Jesus offers to those who will come. Those who believe in Jesus will be filled and fully satisfied. Filled and fully satisfied. Now, this promise, it takes on incredible meaning and significance when we remember the context. Remember, they are in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is a feast that commemorated God's provision of water as the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. It was a feast that also commemorated the anticipated blessings of the Messianic age. When the people transitioned from that nomadic life, that desert life, that wilderness walking life, and they go into the land of Canaan, they now experienced the provision of regular waterfall and plentiful crops. To remember God's provision of water and blessing, there was a water ritual that would take place each day of the feast. And there's seven days that this feast would happen. Now, this water ritual was not prescribed in the Old Testament. Rather, it became a part of the traditions hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Here's what the water ritual would look like. On each of the different days of the feast, the priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam. And they would carry it in procession back into the temple. At the water gate, which was a part of the temple, there would be three blasts of the shofar, the ram's horn. And at the blast of the ram's horn, it would be a time to mark the joy of the occasion. At that moment, they would begin to quote Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And the priest would then march around the altar while the temple choir sang Psalm 113 through 118 as they offered up a prayer of thanksgiving to God. The water would then be poured out as an offering to God. And on the last day, which is the day that Jesus stands up here, on the last day, it was a double portion of water that would be poured out. So according to historians, at this moment, Jesus might have been standing in ankle-deep water when he gives these words, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Do you see the significance of what he's doing? He's using the moment. He's using the traditions. He's using the festivals to highlight thirst. In other words, at a time in which they celebrated God's provision of water that led to physical life, Jesus says, come to me and drink and I'll give water for your spiritual life. This invitation, this is so important, has three parts emphasized by three key words. Thirst, come, drink. Thirst, come, drink. This is an invitation to those who are thirsty. If a person recognizes this spiritual thirst, Jesus says, come. The question for you and I is, are we thirsty? Maybe you've tried to quench that thirst through other means. Maybe you tried to quench that thirst in the mud puddles of sin. And whatever it is, you find out it doesn't quench the thirst. The issue is not what you've tried. The issue is, are you still thirsty? He says, if any of you thirst, second part, come. 
That's the second piece of this invitation. Will you come to Jesus? Not everyone who is thirsty is willing to come. The question is, will you come and listen to his claims? Will you hear his message specifically for you? If the answer is yes, the third part is drink. It is not enough for you to know you're thirsty. It's not enough for you to come and hear the message of Jesus. The question is, will you drink the offer that he's given? The Bible gives us another story of a guy, he's referred to as the rich young ruler, who eagerly runs to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus very clearly speaks to him and says, this is what's getting in the way. And the Bible says he's unwilling to address it. And here's what it says. And he walked away grieving. He knew there was a thirst. He came to the right source. He was unwilling to drink because the offer that Jesus was giving was showing an area of pride and problem in his life that he was not willing to address. The question is, will you appropriate by faith what he is offering to you? For those who are thirsty, for those who are willing to come to Jesus, for those who will drink, that is they will receive, they will believe, they will accept his offer. Here's what he promises in verse 38. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And he tells us the source of this river in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Just as physical water sustained Israel and quenched their physical thirst in the wilderness, so living water will sustain you and quench your spiritual thirst today. Just as water satisfies and leads to fruitfulness, so the Spirit of God will satisfy and lead to fruitfulness in your life. The Greek phrase here for within him is literally out of the belly. It was a phrase that was used of that deep cavernous part, the innermost part of the individual themselves that the Hebrews said was the seat of their emotion. Here's what Jesus is saying. When someone drinks of the water of life, when somebody's willing to receive his invitation, he's saying from their innermost being, the deepest part of who they are, there is going to be a river that flows. There is a water that flows. It, it fully satisfies. The wording here is out of the heart or out of the belly will flow. In other words, for something to overflow, it first must be filled. Before there's anything that goes to somebody else, he's saying, oh, if you'll accept what I'm offering, I'll fill you. I'll satisfy you. But it doesn't end with you. Listen, this is why. This is why the gospel message has been polluted within much of the church in America today. We make the gospel only about us. What can God do for me? How can God solve my problems? How can he satisfy my needs? But listen, God is so good that his message not only fills and satisfies and changes you, but it is intended to go through you to others. It's intended to be an overflowing source. And when we make it only about us, that's part of the reason people say life has no satisfaction. Why? 
Because anytime we live for self, we're never going to be satisfied. Self always craves more for self. But when self has been submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when self comes and meets the risen Savior, when self is filled with the Holy Spirit, and that person understands, it's not just about you. It's about the nations. It's about the world. What I did in you was never intended to stay with you. What I did in you is intended to extend to those that are around you. Because others around you are thirsty. Others around you have deep craving. Others around you have inner need. And what I did for you was never supposed to just stay with you. It's intended to flow to those that are around you. When people begin to pick up on that, all of a sudden, purpose, meaning, hope, adventure, joy, begins to get infused into the journey because you see what God has done in you and what God is doing through you in order to change the world around you. I wrote this in my notes and I'll close. Just an interesting thought. God never intended for Christians to be stagnant ponds of spiritual truth. God called us to be pure conduits of living water. So what do you do with this message? Three words. Thirsty, come, drink. Are you thirsty? He's talking to you. Will you come? Balls in your court. Will you drink? All three pieces are essential. Let me close with this thought. Jesus told the unbelieving crowd in verse number 34, where I am, you cannot come. Seven chapters after this, he's talking with his disciples just before the cross, talking about going to the Father's house. And here's what he says. Where I am, there you may be also. <laughs> the only thing between the two is Jesus. What will you do with the invitation of Christ? Bow with me for prayer. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. I want to encourage you in this moment to ask God to give you unbelievable clarity as to how he's calling you to respond. What is your next step supposed to be? For some of you, you have responded to this gospel invitation in the past, but maybe part of your response today is, God, would you allow me to be that pure conduit through which living water reaches all of those around me? For others in this moment, you're still on the side of, I'm thirsty. I keep trying things. Tried vacations. Tried money. I've tried positions and career advancements. And they're good, but they don't satisfy. And maybe you've been on this quest for a while. What in this life will completely satisfy? Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come and drink. He alone can satisfy. Here's the story that you find in the Bible. 
God made you for a relationship with himself. That's why humanity was created. But it's our sin that got in the way of that relationship. It's nothing that we could ever do to make things right. Religion couldn't make it right. Morality couldn't make it right. Good works will not make it right. The question becomes, who can make it right? 2,000 years ago, God himself clothes himself in flesh, comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He lives a sinless life. He dies a substitutionary death on the cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose again on the third day that we might have what the Bible calls eternal life. Eternal life is a right relationship with God. And he offers this right relationship to those who will repent of their sin. That means that they agree with God about their sin. They're willing to turn from that sin. They just don't turn to religion. They turn to Christ. They say it's either him or nothing. And they're willing to trust in him. According to that gospel story, for the person who is willing to do that, God saves them. God redeems them. He, he redeems their past. He gives them a new future. He forgives their sin. It's, it's a new life. It's an abundant life. It's a life with purpose, a life with meaning. But it's a life that's only made possible by Jesus. Only by Jesus. Only by Jesus. Only by Jesus. Are you thirsty still? Only Jesus can satisfy. I'm going to lead to a very simple prayer at this point. For those who are thirsty and they long for Jesus to satisfy. I'm going to encourage you to pray with me in your heart to God. This is not you praying to me. It's simply you praying with me as we pray to God. It would simply be this. God, I know that I've sinned. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. As best I know how, I turn from that sin by placing faith in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross I believe that he rose again on the third day. As best I know how, I place my faith in what Jesus has done for me. With heads still bowed, eyes still closed, I'm not going to ask people to come forward. I do want to rejoice with you this morning. If you've prayed with me right now, if you've prayed with me, that God would give you this eternal life, he would save you. Would you lift your hand wherever you might be? Anywhere around. Thank you, thank you. You may put him down. Hands all around. Thank you, you may put him down. Right after the service, I'm going to be at my table in the back as you leave the building. I've got a small book I'd love to be able to give you on what it looks like to walk in this new relationship with God. Heavenly Father, we know that only you can give the words of eternal life that truly satisfy. Thank you for the message, the gospel. Thank you for the gift of your son. We ask today, God, that lives would continue to be changed today and around this valley and around the world as people encounter the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.